According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as we return to where we left off on Sunday. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, although questions and answers may take us elsewhere. Uh, Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking for the Father's blessing upon our time together tonight. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you tonight, thankful for your grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, praying, Father, for the blessing of your word as it goes forth tonight, claiming the promise, Father, that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And Father, tonight you've sent your word yet again, and I pray that its purpose would be achieved that each one of us would be humble to receive the word implanted, and that, Father, uh, we would be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. I do thank you, Father. Also, Father, our visitor from this morning, you know who he is, where he is, and what's going on. I just thank you that you brought him to us and we had a gospel opportunity. So that's in your hands as well. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. We have a microphone ready to go. There it is. All right. And uh, we'll see how tonight goes. You missed a good one last week. That uh, microphone runner was working hard last week. So, um, I have some by email. Let me start with those, and then we'll take the uh, the live questions here from the class. Uh, Valme emailed again from uh, Australia. You might recall she's emailed a couple times. Uh, <clears throat> she has a question about Mark four twelve twenty five, which says, "For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like." angels in heaven. And uh, Jesus states, her question says, Jesus states that at the resurrection, the widow and brothers would be as angels in heaven. As this is pre-bride of Christ, is the resurrection mentioned here at the second advent or end of millennium? As bride of Christ, will we be considered as angels by those in the millennium and in the new heaven and the new earth? And that's actually a couple of related questions and they're, they're excellent. And it's worth considering the fact that as he speaks, the church isn't around yet. So this is a question that precedes the church. And and so you have to address that dispensationally as well. Um, But it is, uh, I think the key expression there, beyond the story, and it's a ludicrous story that these idiots made up. Remember about the woman that was married and then the husband died and then she marries the brother and then he died and seven brothers in a row and they all keep dying. And I mean, just... How crazy is that? But anyway, um, the the point is though, it is in the resurrection. He says, "It is not. Uh, uh, is this not the reason you were mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven." And in the Mark, in this account, it speaks to the verbal activity of rising from the dead. In Matthew and Luke, I think it says talks about in the resurrection. And so, based on that. We can apply this to Israel, to Old Testament saints, to Old Testament Gentiles, to the bride of Christ, to any believers that are resurrected. All right, So in the resurrection, uh, that we cast off mortality, we put on immortality. We cast off the perishable, we put on the imperishable. That's the nature of resurrection. And so a resurrection body is not a procreative body, it is not a marital body. As uh, as that goes, okay, and so yes, that applies. 
And I, and I think we want to pay attention to the word like. They are like the angels in heaven. We don't turn into angels, okay? That's kind of bad Catholic doctrine and other uh, mythology that turns us into angels and we can earn our wings if we're extra good or dumb stuff like that. Um, we don't turn into angels, but we are angel-like in the sense that we are non-procreative, okay? And so that's, uh, that's the answer to that. Um, and it's actually a useful study because there are uh, believers at the end of the millennium who are not resurrected. And you've got to understand theologically what then happens to them. What happens to the living generation of believers at the conclusion of the millennial kingdom? When they cross into the new heavens and new earth, does, does something happen to their bodies? Are they, are they raptured? Are they given a resurrection body? Are they glorified? What happens to that, that generation of living saints at the end of the millennial kingdom? And uh, in my view, and the view that I think supports the thousand generations of the fullness of time, is that that living generation is not resurrected at the end of the millennium, but they are rather transitioned into the new heavens and new earth, and their sin is removed. And so their sin nature is removed, there's no more sickness, no more death, no more sin. They're restored back to Adam's original sinless mortality. And so on that basis then, they, uh, they can become generation zero that then can procreate the first of the, uh, the thousand generations in the, in the fullness of time. All right, well that's beyond her question, but I wanted to throw that out there as well. Um, she had a second question unrelated, but can you please clarify Second Peter 1.11? I'm assuming this is referring to rewards in heaven, and it is. Uh, when it talks about in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And so we, uh, we enter the kingdom, we inherit the kingdom, we enter the kingdom, some will abundantly enter the kingdom, you know, with the doors wide open, with the red carpet, with rewards poured out in, uh, in an abundant fashion. And I believe that's the, uh, the case there in Second Peter chapter 1. Because it talks about um, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. And it uh, talks about how we bear fruit and how we grow and and so forth. So I accept that as a, as a reward passage. The abundant entrance into the kingdom. Alright? So those are Valme's questions. Um, and while I'm thinking about it, that also relates to a question of the kingdom of God that's like seven weeks old now. We haven't answered it yet. But the question was, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the, the personal rule of Jesus Christ on this earth. It's the kingdom that was promised in the book of Daniel that all the Gentile kingdoms are coming to an end and that the stone made without hands is going to come crashing to the earth, is going to land on the earth, is going to fill the earth with a great kingdom that will never end. And so that's uh, the kingdom of heaven that arrives on earth. Uh, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, that's what we have to look forward to in the kingdom. So clearly the kingdom's not here yet because the king is still seated at the right hand of, of the Father until such time as the Father sends him uh, to return at his second advent. All right. And then finally, the last of the email questions came from Bill. Um, a question regarding Zechariah 8.19, which speaks about fasting and feasting. How do you feast during a fast? Uh, the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months. Uh, so four different fasts uh, in the fourth month, the fifth month, the seventh month, and the tenth month. Uh, they will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. And so how does a fast become a feast? 
uh, would you explain what appears to be fasting feasts and uh, what all that entailed? Yeah, and, and really, um, in fact, for most of these, they were not even given in the Bible. These were uh, fasts that, that uh, the Jews had kind of created for themselves. Here's the Bible Knowledge Commentary that speaks of this. This is, by the way, this is an, an answer to a question that came a chapter earlier in chapter 7. Uh, some delegates arrived from Bethel that were asking about these fasts. And uh, so he's answering the question from chapter 7. And these, these were not given in the law. These were just added. Uh, they, the Jews decided, hey, let's, have a, let's hold a fast to remember bad stuff. You know, like the, the beginning of the siege and the end of the siege and the conquering of the city. And let's just let's get together and weep and fast and have, have these kind of gloomy, not, not celebration days, but gloomy days, uh, as it were. And um, anyway, so the promise is, the Lord says, okay, uh, you made that up, you added that to your calendar. It wasn't a part of the Levitical calendar, but tell you what, in the Millennial Kingdom, uh, you're going to have those days, but they're going to be joyful days. I'm going to turn your fasting into feasting, and even on the days that you used to be gloomy about, uh, you're going to feast on those days. And I think that's kind of fun. I think that's a a neat way that the Lord tells His people that uh, He's turned sorrow into joy, cursing into blessing, and uh, even the the widow gets, or the, the unmarried gets to say married and celebrate the, the Beulah blessings of the millennial kingdom. So anyway, that's kind of interesting. J. Vernon McGee had a funny quote there too. I liked what he said. Um, he says, uh, God says to them, I never gave you any fast days. These days that you have set up to fast and go through a nice little religious ritual, I'm going to turn them into feast days, days of rejoicing, days of love and truth and peace. And then McGee goes on to comment, he says, these are things that are absent in our con- contemporary culture and society. I wonder if it has ever occurred to anyone that if we would go back and teach the great biblical and moral values that are stated in the Word of God, it might have a tremendous effect upon our society today. <laughs> he says, some of us believe that it would. In effect, God is saying, I don't want you to come before me with a long face and that pious look that you have. I want you to come before me with joy. My friend, a lot of us are not enjoying being Christians as we should. God wants us to have a whole lot of fun. I think that the big fun center for Christians ought to be the local church. Someone says, oh, do you mean we ought to have a volleyball court? No, I mean come together and study the Word of God. That ought to be fun. And there's something wrong with you, Christian, and studying the Word of God is not fun. (laughs) So anyway, that was James Vernon McGee's quote from Zechariah 8, 19. And I appreciated that as well. So, all right. Well, that takes care of the old business and the email items and that. Uh, do we have some new business, some fresh questions? Okay, we'll cross over here to the right side. We'll give Eliezer the first question. You had a question? Okay. You're on deck. My question is from Revelation 7.14. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Revelation 7.14. 7.14, okay. Yes, sir. Um, he's talking about um, the Gentiles, and it says, these are the ones, the ones referring to the Gentiles, um, who come out of the great tribulation. So my question is, um, will those in the church in the last days on the earth go through the tribulation? No, the church has no part in the tribulation whatsoever. And in fact, the tribulation can't begin until the church is removed. And, and, And there's so many proof text for that. The easiest one of which comes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that talks about the restrainer and that when you understand the restrainer is the Holy Spirit and the permanent indwelling role the Holy Spirit has in the church 
Because the restrainer is both a what and a he, the thing which and the, and the one who, which applies to the Holy Spirit uniquely. So um, yeah, the, the Antichrist can't be revealed. He's under restraint until such time as the bride is gone. Then the Antichrist can be revealed and then the rest of that program proceeds. Also, I think uh, the, the first 69 of, of those 70 weeks all applied to Israel. The church had no part in those first 69. Why would they have a part in the 70th, in the 70th septad of Daniel 9? They have no part. Um, and in, in part, too, this verse is marvelous in this because there are believers, there are people get saved, there's tremendous evangelism that happens in the tribulation. And so uh, those folks getting saved they're not a part of the bride. The bride's already been raptured. The bride's already having a wedding feast. You know, it'd be like a groom that gets married and then more of his bride shows up later. Um, that's just uh, kind of creepy. <laughs> so no, he gets married to the whole bride. There's no partial rapture theory, right? And he, and he presents the whole bride spotless and blameless before the Father. And we have the wedding supper and all that's taking place in heaven while literally hell is being unleashed here on earth. So that's, there's lots of different ways to defend the church's absence during the tribulation. So I hope that helps. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, and then front row here, Chris, we got, uh, Chuck's got a question tonight. I'm glad, I'm glad you said we're supposed to have fun at church. So let me go back to your question, um, your answer about the kingdom of God. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Are you? The the kingdom of God you're saying is Jesus's millennial rule on the earth, or is it a thousand generations? Both. Okay. Yeah. And the kingdom of God is the same as the kingdom of heaven. Yes. Okay. All right. Good. Cool. Although you will find pastors that will nitpick and, and dispute that, um, I don't think it's disputable, given the fact that the kingdom of heaven is is terminology unique to Matthew, and parallel messages in Mark and Luke speak to the same events, but call it the kingdom of God. Okay. And so they are used interchangeably depending upon the author's emphasis. Okay, thanks. Okay. And my, my other question is, in Revelation 19, uh, 19.14, okay. it says, the armies which are in heaven, mm-hmm. who are those? I believe that's us. Okay. Uh, because of the fine linen, white and clean, uh, now, there are other hosts. Uh, Yahweh Tsevaioth is the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of the armies. And because armies is plural and hosts is plural, he's got an assortment of armies to work with, including an angelic army, clearly. Uh, but I believe these are the saints. I think the fine linen, white and clean is defined elsewhere in Revelation as being the righteous acts of the saints. Um, also, because um, the rapture passage, which says, thus we shall always be with the Lord. So if the Lord is here descending on, on a white horse, where is the bride? Well, if thus we shall always be with the Lord, then we're here. And, and that makes sense, given the fine linen, white and clean, following him on white horses. So I accept this as the bride of Christ, the church, in our soldier function as the, as the armies of heaven. Thanks. Uh-huh. I did have a pastor dispute with me on that. We argued for about an hour and a half. All right, uh, we'll give Kevin a question there. Um, because his view was, you know, what kind of husband is it that takes his wife to battle? You know, I said, okay, granted, that's not normal, but uh, when you're the Lord of hosts and your bride is the royal family of God, armored up and, and with divine power as, as being baptized into union with Christ, I think that's the kind of husband that takes his wife into battle. But anyway, yes, sir. 
Okay, my question is, um, when John Baptist showed up and he was baptizing, uh-huh. and the Pharisees sent, you know, their minions down there to say, what are you doing, what gives you the authority, when did baptizing actually first take place that they knew what he was doing, or were they expecting that? Um, I believe that it, that John was a pioneer, that this was a brand new practice. Um, now, in later centuries, uh, Jews would um, have a similar procedure for their proselytes. For Gentiles that decided to become Jewish, that became proselyte uh, adherents to Judaism, that they had a water washing ritual similar to Christian water baptism, uh, but big differences in the sense that, uh, that a, a Gentile proselyte actually self-immersed, dunked himself under and brought himself back up in the in the Jewish ritual, um, also it's not entirely clear how early that rabbinic practice started, and uh, if if it was not as early as some people try to make it out to be, then it's not a matter of Christianity ripping off a Jewish practice. It may actually have been the reverse. It may have been a a second or third century Jewish practice that was kind of replicating uh, Christian baptism at that point. So no, when, when John the Baptist came in the wilderness of Judea preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and when he was baptizing them while they confessed their sins, that also is new. All right, And none of that's found in the Old Testament. That was unique and given by the Lord to John the Baptist and that was a part of his role as the herald, as the forerunner of the Christ. Okay, so uh, like John one twenty five, it says they asked him and, and said to him, uh, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So did they know what baptism was or is it just that he explained it to them? No, I don't think they had any clue what it was, and, and which I think is what underlies this question. The Christ or Elijah or the prophet, uh, they were all expected by virtue of Old Testament prophecy. The Messiah was expected. Elijah was expected, and a prophet like unto Moses was expected. And of course, we know that that's also the Christ. That's one and the same as, as the Christ. Um, they didn't know that, and that was a big debate. But um, the idea that who, who are you to invent this, to do something new, unless you are one of these people? You know, only the Christ would have authority to institute a practice that's not in Torah, that's not in the Old Testament or possibly Elijah, or possibly the prophet like unto Moses. That you would have to be at that level of Moses or Elijah or Christ. No one else could just hand down a ritual like that without, you know, without it being written in the, in the Bible, in the Torah. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. All righty, outstanding questions tonight. I appreciate it. Okay, back over to Bill then. And we'll make this our, our final question for the night. I am going to finish... Uh, calls to the ministry tonight if I have to keep you till 3 a.m. Very elementary question. Okay. Um, I've asked a couple other people here in the congregation this question. Um, when an infant dies, whether in the womb or out of the womb, they go immediately face-to-face with Christ. When they receive their resurrection body, is it an infant body <laughs> or is it an adult body? I don't know. How about that? Um, you know, uh, because we don't have that many examples of resurrected bodies, okay? Christ was raised from the dead, and we have his resurrection body. Um, we don't have 
other examples. There were other people resuscitated, Lazarus and, and, and folks that came back to life, but they were just restored to their mortality and they you know, lived out their days and died later. Um, as far as a true resurrection body is concerned, in visions of those, you've got Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration, and even that's not clear that that was resurrection body that was being viewed. So um, anyway, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he gives everybody an adult body or he gives everybody a young adult body or gives everybody, uh, you know, I don't know. I do know, though, that it did bother my children. Uh, I won't tell you which one in particular, but two of my four children were very bothered by the fact that the rapture might come when they were just four years old or five years old. and They, they didn't want to be a five-year-old forever. Okay, but I, I don't think that they're going to care. Anyone would care. In, in you're going to live forever anyway. What's the difference? And uh, in, in in that, but um, no, I don't. I don't know. And 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 I guess it would happen on the other end of the spectrum as well. I mean, if you're eight, in your 80s or pushing 90, or you know, Mrs. Box was 106 when she passed away. Um, does she want to be in a 106 year old body for her resurrection body? You know how? You know, so we don't know. But they're going to be glorious, and they're going to be great, and we're going to like them. And uh, I, beyond that, I don't know. And yeah, because a, a, a miscarriage or a child that, that is not even birthed, you know, David said, I will go to him, but he will not come to me, was the, the statement that was made there of his one-week-old son. And that's, uh, that's the basis by which we, kind of with deductive reasoning, we, we understand that prior to the age of accountability that children are uh, brought into the, the presence of Jesus Christ. All righty. Well, then, uh, thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. Let's uh, let's go to Second Corinthians chapter two, and we'll pick up where we left off on Sunday. We are in the summary and conclusion to our study, and it essentially has two parts: an A and a B, and um, we're talking about the gifts and calling. As a wrap-up, all right? We introduced it from Philippians 1. We talked about getting into the ministry for right reasons and wrong reasons. Um, talked about how it's the Lord Jesus Christ that leads us in our ministry pursuits. All that was introduction. Then under uh, development, we had principles of ministry calling, five of those. We had uh, illustrations of ministry calling. We had five of those. And then finally, we had under C, we had dangers and warnings of ministry calling. Seven of those, actually. Seven points of study there. Uh, Ending with um, the hardest one of all, the idea of not finishing the course. And uh, you've got to run with endurance. You've got to reach the finish line. And that's not the finish line you choose. That's the finish line God chooses. And until He calls you home, you're not done. And... uh, the thing about losing heart and, and bailing and, and uh, loving this present world and not finishing the course just becomes uh, horrendous to, to even think about. It almost becomes unthinkable that you would uh, run well up to a point and then, you know, as, as Paul said, you foolish Galatians, you were running well. Who, who uh, hindered you from obeying the truth? Okay? And that gets very personal. In fact, uh, you know, I can preach a message like that and then spend three days wondering why I'm still in the ministry. All right. So those kind of testings happen. And, uh, and we're thankful that we have the scriptures that we have. All right. So we then get to the summary and the conclusion. And here's what we're dealing with. All right. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. 
that is without repentance, that uh, they cannot be revoked. As he's given the gift, as he's issued the call, uh, that's his good pleasure to do so. And in Romans eleven twenty nine, we're told the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. All right. So if he has given it to you, think about your salvation. It's a gift. Does it ever expire? Does it ever? Does he ever take it back? Uh, no. That's the whole point to the gift. It's eternal. The eternal God has given an eternal gift, and it's irrevocable. It's not coming back. Uh, that's true for the gift of our eternal life. But that's also true for our spiritual gift. goes with our eternal life. It also holds true for our calling. Now what's different about our calling, of course, is that we can uh, volitionally, we can make a wreck of things. We can just, uh, we can go carnal and reversionistic and just turn as ugly as, as sin can get, at which point what happens to our ministry? What happens to our calling? See, it's still a calling, it's still God's ideal will for our life, but we have, uh, in a sense, thrown away what, uh, what God has designed us for. And so we may fail and we may be disqualified for a season, but the restoration of such a one is always the objective. Why? If precisely because the gifts and calling are without repentance. The gifts and calling are irrevocable. And so the idea of restoration, we never want to lose sight of that. So uh, I won't go back there, but Sunday morning we spent a lot of time in 1 Timothy 3. I fixed the typo that said 1 Timothy 1. It's 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13 that speaks of the overseer and it speaks of the deacon in their qualifications, all right? For example, including managing your own household well and not being a drunk and not being greedy and not being a striker and, and things of that nature. And so what happens though if through carnality and sin and whatever, darkness, uh, the, the, the pastor blows it. He decides to do whatever and he, he commits these horrible sins and he's not repentant, okay? He's going to keep doing them and he's going to try to convince you that he's right for doing them and, uh, and, and you're not having any part of that because the Bible says, no, this is sin, this is wrong. And so uh, this, this pastor then is removed. He's removed from his office. He loses his lampstand. It's a part of the discipline that happens there. And so being disqualified for a season, though, is not a lifetime ban, right? We don't treat him like Pete Rose in, in baseball and say, forget it, lifetime ban, you'll never be in the Baseball Hall of Fame, okay? Um, if such a one becomes repentant, even the man of incest in 1 Corinthians, he was to be restored. And I'm so thankful that we have this here. And of course, Galatians 6.1, we taught not that long ago, but uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 11. And you'll notice, even backing up to verse 5, he says, but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. And this is a very diplomatic way for Paul to, to be talking, saying, you know, not to mention. <laughs> and anytime somebody says, well, you know, not to mention, and they're about to mention something that, that, uh, that we all know about. And so the whole point being is, you know, sure, it was a disappointment, it's a sorrow, it's a grievous thing. Anytime a believer falls into sin, uh, does that mean you're letting the apostle down? Does that mean you're letting the pastor down? Does that mean that you know the pastor takes it personally or thinks that he failed somehow when this believer goes off and does whatever? 
Um, but he turns it back to the congregation and he says, hey, forget the impact I'm dealing with here. What about you guys? And uh, if he's caused sorrow, not to me so much, but how about to you, to all of you? Because now you're falling short. You were falling short back in 1 Corinthians when you didn't judge the man and throw him out of the church. Now you're compounding the issue because you're not restoring him. You're not bringing him back. So that's why it says in verse 6 then, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Okay? And that's the beauty of it there. And I love that. I mean, we don't even know his name. I, I just call him such a one. And I don't, maybe that was his name. But uh, such a one then is the one kicked out, but now he's the one restored. Okay? And that's, uh, that's the blessing there. And uh, so he says, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. And if you weren't here on Sunday, pay attention to that reaffirm. Because that's now a second love application. The first love application was when they disciplined him was when they kicked him out. That was done in love. Now they get to reaffirm their love for him by uh, accepting him back into the congregation. Uh, for to this end I also wrote that, you might put, that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Um, and you see the whole thing here, if we're not grace-oriented, if we don't restore such a one, then Satan just has a field day with that. Verse 11 says, "...so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan." For we are not ignorant of his schemes. And the fact is that Satan, if he sees that this is a local church that has problem with forgiveness, then Satan uh, knows that, hey, this is a local church that he can really do some damage with. He can really come in and wreak all kinds of havoc uh, because he's dealing with believers that don't have the grace to deal with it. And so we don't want to be taken advantage of. Uh, we should know better than that. We're not ignorant of his schemes. So restoration is always the objective. And punishment, notice, is punishment stops when it's sufficient. How much is sufficient? How much, you know, what's the purpose of the punishment? How, what's it designed to do? And when it does what it's designed to do, that is sufficient. Okay? You don't just keep doing it because you can or because you want to, or because you like it, because <laughs> he had it coming to him. Wait a minute, okay? We all have it coming to us at some one time or another, but if the discipline has produced the repentance, then it's sufficient. And guess what? It might not even require the discipline. It might be that you've gone to him one-on-one, or you know, get two or three, and it might be then that he listens to you. You've won your brother. You don't have to even take it to the step where you kick him out of the church. Because you've won your brother, it stops there. You always stop when the repentance is triggered. Okay, I hope we're clear on that. But sufficient for such a one. We don't want to have the excessive sorrow. You don't want to punish too hard. and uh, Because then he loses heart. You have the overwhelming, as it says, might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Okay, You don't want it to be too little, because then that doesn't do anything. That doesn't produce repentance. And then uh, you don't want it to be too much. Because if it's produced the repentance, stop it already. Okay? That's, uh, that's the point there. I will always remember the day that my mother figured out that her spankings didn't hurt. <laughs> okay? And it actually it happened, she finally caught on some length of time after it had stopped hurting. 
because uh, the kids grow up and you get older and just mom doesn't hurt anymore. Um, but I, I, I didn't exactly let her know that at first. You know, you try to act like it's not fun and you're hurt and oh, don't spank me. And, but then you lay it on a little bit too thick and you're not exactly a, an actor anyway. So when she finally caught on to the fact that her spankings weren't hurting anymore, then she never spanked me again because I then belonged to dad exclusively after that time. And, and his did hurt. He made very sure that his, there was no question that his spankings hurt. So um, that's my illustration. I will always use that illustration about excessive versus insufficient uh, for such a one. And uh, that's the illustration there. All right, Galatians 6.1, we were there not that long ago. Galatians 6.1. I know, I was terrible. You guys are learning about your pastor. I was probably grounded more than ungrounded, just if you logged all the time together. All right. Brethren, even if, okay, just hypothetically, because it's going to be true at some point in time, even if anyone, anyone, including the pastor, anyone, is caught in any trespass. And right here is where legalists want to stand up and say, oh, but, 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 what about this? What about this? Or they've got a laundry list of things that are just beyond the pale and oh, that can't be forgiven. Wait a minute. Anyone, anything, any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. That's what we had in Second Corinthians with restoration and such a one. In a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. All right, and this is uh, not an option. This is imperative mood all the way through. This is expected of believers in a grace-oriented ministry. We should be restoring such a one and leading right into bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. No, restoration is always the objective. James 5, verses 19 and 20. Hebrews, James. My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth, okay, well that would never happen here of course. No, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, notice, is that going to be the pastor that turns him back? What if it's just a brother? What if anybody can do this? Come alongside. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Okay? And so there it is. Restoration of such a one is always the objective. What, what phase salvation is that? Are we talking about? Okay, there you go. Phase two. Save his soul from death and the prolonged carnality and the darkness of, of a believer who should know better that leaves the Word of God and starts living in that prolonged carnality. And this is phase two salvation where you're delivered from the power of sin on an experiential basis and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, this, that's the neat thing too is that when you're grace-oriented to be able to restore such a one and, and you're not excusing the sin, clearly repentance is required and you're helping them in that recovery and you're getting them back under teaching and those kind of things. Um, but boy, to cover the multitude of sins, what a privilege. All right. So the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. We may fail and be disqualified for a season, but restoration of such a one is always the objective and reaching forward is always 
expected. Philippians 3 verses 12 through 14. And we'll be having this coming up in our Philippians series, obviously. But here's a preview for you tonight. In chapter 3 verses 12 through 14. Reaching forward is always expected. The idea of forgetting what lies behind, that includes the successes, that includes the failures, that includes everything. All right? Just let it go. Let's reach forward to what lies ahead. And uh, says in uh, Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I love that. Isn't that a beautiful verse? So Jesus saved me for some reason. <laughs> I'm saved unto good works, prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. There's a work assignment, there's a purpose, there's a destiny. And, uh, and until I serve the purpose of God in my generation, then there's still work to be done. I'm not ready to, to die and be buried and to lay you know, at rest with my fathers and all the other idiomatic expressions that we have there. I want to press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I want to be able to say like Paul did, I've re- I finished the race, I fought the good fight, I finished my course. There is nothing left to do other than the final work assignment of Jesus, uh, glorifying Jesus Christ in my death. That too wants, I want to be a glory for my Savior. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. <laughs> okay? Wow. So by the time Paul's writing Philippians, how many books of the Bible has he already written? How many churches has he founded? How many people has he led to Christ? How many pastors has he trained? You know, so if this is a grading on a curve uh, comparison of one human to another human, uh, which it's not, by the way, I was just letting you know that. But even if it was, everyone here, we're all pretty pathetic compared to what Paul has done in his ministry, Right? None of us have written a book of the Bible. None of us have, you know. Anyway, it's not a human comparison anyway. Let me get off that. But the point is, whatever you think you've achieved, forget about it. Quit thinking like that. Okay? Do not regard yourself as la- having laid hold of it yet. Don't just think it's, it's, it's a win. You've got this in the bag. No. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, So we are looking forward. And this is the perfecting attitude as it says in verse 15. Let us therefore as many as are perfect, being perfected, have this attitude. If you've got a different attitude, well, God is able to reveal that also to you. <laughs> okay, He is a great attitude adjuster in the universe. He is uh, qualified and well rehearsed, okay, as the song says. So, you can appreciate that. That's the first point of summary. Second point of summary while the field of service is earthly, the calling is heavenly, the focus is heavenly, the reward is heavenly. Don't ever lose sight of that, okay? And this is the last point, the conclusion to the conclusion. But while the field of service is earthly, all of our ministry is here on this earth. When we leave earth, we're done with ministry, at least for this, uh, this go-around, right? We will have more work to do in the resurrection, by the way. The bride of Christ will be very active in the millennium and in the new heavens and new earth. There's a lot of work we're being suited to do. So don't think that in the resurrection uh, that we are just uh, 
floating on a harp, or no, floating on a cloud, playing a harp, doing nothing. Okay? No, it's a sad view of, of eternity. We're going to be actively functioning as the bride of Christ, as the queen to the, to the king in the royal family of God, and we're going to be busy about our Father's business. First for a thousand years, then for a thousand generations. So stay tuned for that. While the field of service is earthly, the calling is heavenly, the focus is heavenly, and the reward is heavenly. We've already had Philippians 3.14 because it was the closing verse of the passage we just read. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now is a prize, is that the same as a gift? No. No, a gift is given out of the graciousness and goodness of the giver. Uh, not, it's a grace thing, you haven't earned it, haven't deserved it, but what about a prize? Okay. For the moment, take yourself out of the 21st century American, everybody gets a prize insanity. Okay. This is not a participation trophy, everybody gets a ribbon kind of thing. This is pressing on for the prize. And a prize is awarded. The prize is assigned based, based upon victory, based upon achievement. And so we do press on. And that's what we should uh, focus on. But it's a heavenly calling, an upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How about Hebrews 3.1? Hebrews 3. Yes, there is a chapter 3. We just haven't gotten there yet. We're taking our time through chapters 1 and 2. But when we get to chapter 3, how does it start? It says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. You see that? Partakers of a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so we have the, the introduction here to the, the great priesthood that Hebrews presents for you and I in the body of Christ, that he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. And uh, that's our confession as a heavenly calling. Serving here on the earth, but uh, the calling itself is heavenly. The focus is heavenly, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. <coughs> and the reward is heavenly. Matthew 5.12, Matthew 6.1, 1 Peter 5.4. So the calling is heavenly, the focus is heavenly. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. You should know this. If, uh, if you have observed or taken part in one of our um, baptisms... Even if I wasn't the one that dunked you, but if you saw it happen, or you were there when it happened, as each uh, candidate came up out of the water, this is the passage we recited. Okay, Every, every candidate comes up out of the water, because I've, I've yet to baptize somebody and leave them under the water. That's not smart, Okay, because Christ didn't stay in the grave, did he? He died on the cross, he went to the grave, he rose again on the third day, that's the picture we're painting. We bring everybody back up out of the water, and as we do, we recite, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, first class condition, it is a true statement, you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in 
glory. That whole section, verses 1 through 4, is what we recite. It's printed on the back of our song sheets when we go down there to, to uh, Barton Springs and conduct the baptism services. So the uh, calling is heavenly, the focus is heavenly. So we don't get all distraught if some terrible evil is, is, happens on this earth. Or we're not devastated if, if something horrible happens, if there's a shooting or there's a, a hurricane or there's, a, there's a, a political election that doesn't go our way or our football team loses. Or I mean, who cares? But see, believers get all wrapped up over stupid stuff earthly stuff that doesn't matter two hoots, okay? But believers get so subjective and so wrapped up in these earthly things and that's not where our focus is supposed to be. We are a heavenly people and we should be focused on the heavenly realities. As I said on Sunday, we are already the new creation that has been created that precedes the new heavens and the new earth. See? So let's, let's focus there. Let's, uh, according to His promise, Let's keep looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the focus is heavenly and the reward is heavenly. The reward is heavenly. Matthew 5.12, Matthew 6.1 and these aren't church age passages but I like them. Matthew 5.12 And I do think that although it's not a church passage overall, Sermon on the Mount is the constitution for the millennial kingdom and it is applied to Israel. Nevertheless, in the text itself, we do have a shift uh, of focus when it does say, because right in verse 3 it's blessed are, verse 4, blessed are, verse 5, blessed are. And And the whole message is given in the third person. Okay, these guys, those guys, the other guys, the poor in spirit, those who are mourned, the gentle, those who hunger and thirst, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who have been persecuted. Okay, and so all of these verses are speaking in the third person, right? Blessed are those guys. Blessed are these guys. Blessed are these other guys. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. But then when it gets to persecution, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you notice all these rewards. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall be, uh, see God. All these blessings, okay? What they can expect, what they can expect, what they can expect. But then when it mentions persecution, he, uh, he adds on and he says, and blessed are you. <laughs> and now it gets personal. You know, the pastor quit preaching and he started meddling because he, uh, he, he got to you. Okay? You started talking to you. Wow, what are you doing? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in any event... Uh, it is a Matthew 5 text. It does apply to a heavenly reward, but I think because of the, sh- the shift from they to you is uh, the Lord is directly addressing Peter and James and John and the, the immediate apostles of His, of his uh, training ministry and what they would have to look forward to as apostles. And uh, so it's not a surprise that He tells them that their treasure is in heaven. Your reward in heaven is great. The reward in heaven is great. Say, well, goodness, 
That's not what my prosperity theology pastor told me. He told me that God wants me to be rich now, that my money should be now, that I should be happy now. <laughs> All right, Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Okay? Now this too is a passage that's given to Israel that we need to adapt for a church age application and so forth. I don't have any problem with Israel having a reward that's presently with the Father in heaven because that's going to come to earth. Jesus said, behold, I'm coming. My reward is with me. My recompense is before me. Uh, so anyway, some, there are some critics of dispensationalism that, that point to this and say, see, see, the Jews have heavenly reward. Okay, If they weren't so worked up over things, they'd be more relaxed over things and they'd see them for what they are. But the point being, um, if you want to be rewarded by man, to be noticed by them, if you want human approbation to be uh, a, a thing, <laughs> if you want people to be impressed, uh, you can impress people. That's, that's possible to do. Uh, but when you do that, that's your reward. Okay? You have your reward in full. Uh, and if you do that, there's no reward coming to you from the Father. Okay, as it says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So, when you give to the poor, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Okay, you're not standing back there at that little brown box and blowing a trumpet saying, hey, everybody, watch me, watch this. You know, get your smartphone out, get this on video, look at this. Here I am, you know, I'm putting 10 bucks in the box. Okay, no. Don't tell anybody, don't blow a trumpet, don't take a picture, don't have it on film. Don't let anybody know. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Okay? Then put a hundred bucks in the box. Or whatever. Okay? As unto the Lord. Okay? As unto the Lord. And notice, these are the hypocrites. They do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. They have the reward in uh, they are receipted for their rewards. It's a term for a, a receipt, right? I'm married to CPA. My life is receipts. I know about getting receipts, okay? If I don't turn in receipts, I go back and I get a receipt, okay? And this is what it's saying. It says, if you want the, the, to be honored by man, you want people to go, ooh, he must be holy, okay? If that's your motivation, then I hope it's a real long and loud ooh, and I, hope, and I hope you enjoy it as long as your ears can still hear the ooh that's going forth. Because the scripture says that's all the reward you're going to get. There is nothing else that you're going to see for that at the, great, at the judgment seat of Christ because that's wood, hand, stubble going to go up in flames. Likewise, so when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving will be in secret. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And it goes on to talk about prayers. You don't want the long flowing prayers. Again, they have their reward in full. And same thing with uh, uh, all of this. All right. So that's Matthew chapter 6. How about 1 Peter 5, 4? 1 Peter 5, 4. And we'll wrap this up tonight.
It says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So if you want reward before that, then you want something the Scripture's not promising you. You want something that maybe a, a slick talker has told you is kind of fun, or, or some prosperity theology has said you deserve, or some kind of uh, bill of goods that says whatever. But the rewards in Scripture, they come from the Lord. They're heavenly rewards. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Notice, this is Peter talking as a fellow elder. He says, I, in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Do you know what that means? If you're a partaker of the glory to be revealed, that means you're a partaker now of the suffering. The suffering that we're all called to go through. That's the only way you can be a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. And he tells these elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. It's not your flock, it's God's flock. So shepherd it well. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion. It can't be compulsion. If if it's a compulsion, if it's a have-to, there's no reward in that. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. If you're in it for the money, you're a hireling, not a shepherd. John, uh, John 10 makes that clear. Jesus preached that. Peter uh, learned that lesson and he's recording it here. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Lording it. You know the noun kurios that, that means lord? Uh, this is a verb that comes from that noun. Lording it. How can I lord anything? I'm not the lord. He's the lord nor yet is lording it over those, and I love this, allotted to your charge. Whatever sheep you are responsible for is not your sheep, but it has been allotted to you. And Jesus is the allotter, right? He's the head of the church. He's the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. But he has allotted certain sheep to certain under-shepherds. And uh, they are allotted to not your lording, but to your charge. That means you're accountable. He's charging you with being faithful to his assignment. And so you better prove to be examples to the flock. That's why he allotted that sheep to your charge. Okay? This is such a powerful text. This is what I use for visitors when I say, you know, if, if you've been allotted to my charge, then, then I want you to hear that. I want you to see that. I want you to know that. I want you to hear the voice of your shepherd. I want you to know that this is the flock that Jesus Christ has assigned you to. But if you have not been allotted in my charge and you don't hear my voice and you don't know the voice of your shepherd, then you have not yet heard the voice of your shepherd, then you better visit some other churches and, and find out where you have been allotted. That's what it comes down to. Because the chief shepherd is the one that does all these allotments. And it's amazing to me the people that have this long laundry list of things they're looking for in a church. From daycare to dating ministry to singles uh, opportunities to bowling leagues or or, whatever it is. They've got all these things and well I don't want it to be more than three minutes from my home because you know time is money and I want to clearly I want a church that's convenient. (laughs) All right. No. None of that matters. There's one consideration. I'm telling Bob and Elvira this as they move up to Washington State, all right? Hear the voice of your shepherd, John 10. Know to whom you have been allotted. And when you identify the shepherd that has been allotted your soul, 
then submit to that. Support that. Pray for that. And uh, there you go. All right. So these elders are told, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the reward is heavenly. The reward comes when our Savior comes. And we're not promised. And we may have special blessings in time. That, that may happen, but we're not guaranteed or promised any of them. This is what we're promised. So stay faithful unto death, and this is what we're promised. All right. Well, that concludes our study then. We will uh, return to Philippians 1 on Sunday, and we'll be ready for the final paragraph, the closing paragraph on chapter 1, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we'll finish verse 18 finally, because we've got one more rejoicing to do in verse 18. Uh, yes, I will rejoice. And then he goes on to talk about being saved, being delivered, and uh, his expectation and hope. And then verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. So got some fun stuff coming up and I'm looking forward to that. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. Father, I do pray for our application as so many uh, of our brothers and sisters right now are praying about ministry opportunities, ministry doors. They're on the verge of going through a door, Father, entering into a new stage of ministry. And and uh, Father, if it wasn't for your word and the encouragement of the scriptures, uh, that can be a, a frightening thing and a very daunting time. But Father, uh, knowing that we're in your will and knowing that we're equipped and knowing that we are saved unto good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All of these uh, truths, Father, are just so powerful. I pray that each one of us would not only understand these truths, but live these truths. Father, give us the full knowledge, the epinosis, the love to apply it. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.